0: Father in heaven, after the refreshing of a a good meal and fellowship, we just pray now that we can continue in our learning and our understanding, and we just pray again that your presence would be here, that we would have a correct understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to do calcium and magnesium together after we kind of go... look at each of them individually in, in these different aspects their roles and their sources and their their um um deficiencies and excesses what you can what their indicators are so here here are some sources for calcium this is not this is not a comprehensive list I tried to put the things in there that I thought were were the were the most beneficial there are other other sources of materials available, like in industrial byproducts. There's um, paper um, sludge from the manufacture of paper. You can get calcium out of that. Some of those things can be beneficial, and if you have them close to you, not everybody kind of has those things. But, but now sometimes people ask me, "Well, is this? Will this work? It's calcium." And uh, <clears throat> we just had to evaluate it. How clean is it after it's gone through whatever process it's gone through? Um, like, uh, if it's been through a scrubber in a uh, coal-powered plant, you're going to need to check for some heavy metals to determine whether or not uh, that's something you want to put on your, put on your ground. It may be, it may be a, a perfectly fine source. But anyway, these are the ones that I think you're pretty safe with if you have them. Um, the, t- the one on the top is high calcium lime. There's two types of lime, high calcium lime and dolomitic lime. The difference is, uh, you can see in the content, high calcium limes are usually about 30 to 38 percent elemental calcium and with a minimal uh, amount of magnesium in them. It can be as high as 5 percent, but usually it's even lower than that. And then the dolomite lime, or dolomitic lime, is a combination of calcium and magnesium carbonate. Uh, the high calcium lime is calcium carbonate. The dolomitic lime is a combination, typically falls in the 20 to 24 percent calcium, 10 to 12 percent magnesium content. Um, I've seen those numbers higher than that and lower than that on both sides. Depends on the quarry that is coming out of and the analysis of the material. But this is kind of the textbook um, expectations of what you would get in, in that material. Um, the third one there is gypsum. Gypsum is, is not a liming material. It's calcium sulfate. What I mean by that when I say it's a liming material, it means it will neutralize acidity, and so it's the carbonate part of the the calcium carbonate or the magnesium carbonate that reacts with the hydrogen ions, which are, are acidic, form they're, they're cations but they're acid forming, reacts with that and produces water and carbon dioxide. So the liming material, when they call it a lime, is because it has that carbonate ion, a carbonate in it, that can react with the acidity, the hydrogen ions. And neutralize the acidity, but your only uh, your priority is not just having the right pH. Your priority is having the right nutrients in the in the right quantities. And when the pH is low, when you have an acid pH, it's just telling you that you're missing cation nutrients. And so then it's then you have to figure out well which ones am I missing? If you if if you use pH as just your your measure, you can use either one of those and it'll it'll raise the pH but the consequences are very different depending on which one you use if you continue to use a a lime with a lot of magnesium in it and your soil doesn't need it, your soil is just going to get harder and harder over time. You might have a good pH but now your soil structure is terrible. (laughs) So, um, but gypsum is is calcium and sulfur, calcium sulfate, uh, so it doesn't have a neutralize. it doesn't have a, a neutralizing effect on the soil. It's actually a neutral impact on it. it's about 20 to 24 percent calcium and and, uh, 15 to 18 percent sulfur. Again, I've seen those numbers different than those on different materials, depending on the source. But this is the general ballpark ballpark of where those percentages are going to be as far as content goes. When I'm doing, when I'm doing recommendations for people, if they don't tell me what their sources are, if I don't know what their sources are, with like with these numbers, for example, if you have a, a limestone quarry in the area, and, and you you can go to the limestone quarry and they have an analysis; they're required to have it, so it's going to tell you what this content is, and it's generally going to tell you what the fineness of the grind is, as well. And the fineness of the grind is important because the more uh, surface area there is, the faster it breaks down. And so it's not critical that you have a certain um, fineness of grind, but if you the, the the less it depends on how much material you have to put on in order to bring the levels of those nutrients to the place that you want them i don't i don't recommend i don't adjust pH when you apply all the materials and the, and the, and the amounts that they need to be the pH will land right where it needs to be and it should be somewhere between six and six and a half it's usually about six three it depends on if you're your if you have woody crops you're growing, you're going to have potassium levels a little bit higher, so it might be a little bit higher, 6.4 <laughs> or something like that. But I don't, I don't worry about pH. I worry about nutrition. And when the re- nutritional content is correct, the pH will be fine. You know all these are the sources of, of calcium. calcium. Yeah, you get other things with some of them, like magnesium with that, sulfur with that. Um, marl is a marine product. It's a, it's a mine marine product. It's got clay impurities with it, but it's a high calcium uh, source, and it's a very good source if you have access to it, um, because it does have some other minerals in it that can be beneficial. Are, are there any handouts that would have this information online or anything? Yeah, you can usually just look it up and look at, like, like if you went on and searched for calcium fertili- calcium sources, fertilizer sources. They'll, um, you can usually find that they, the, the internet. You can find about every, anything you want now sure. on the internet if you know what you're looking for. <laughs> so, um, we're we're going to talk about we're going to talk about when you can use gypsum and when you cannot use gypsum. Use gypsum when we talk about uh, the percentages. that they're required on these, because there are conditions which is, when you put gypsum on, thinking you're going to add calcium, you're going to lose calcium. Because you have to have a minimum saturation of calcium before you can use gypsum. You have to have at least 60% saturation of um, calcium before using gypsum will work. Sulfur, we'll talk about sulfur in just a minute here. A lot of people will tell you, oh, put the gypsum on because it'll soften the soil up and loosen it up. I have a grower that had a professional tell him, and this is where the bucket matters, how big the bucket is. He had a very low CEC soil. His bucket was little. And this person told him to put four tons of gypsum on and two and a half tons of high calcium lime. His soil couldn't even handle that much by any stretch and yet he he put it on. He stripped everything out of his soil and and his apple trees were dying. Because he didn't understand the, the dynamics of, of how cal- calcium functions in the soil. And um, you can actually ruin your soil. If you, if you think that you can put gypsum on to soften the soil to get the yield, and a lot of people do this. And uh, they drive a lot of the nutri- other nutrient elements out of the soil. They just run it right out of the soil and it ruins, it ruins their soil. And um, you can do that for a little while and eventually you won't be able to grow anything at all. Because it'll just it 'll just take everything else out but we 'll we'll elaborate a little bit more on that when we get done both calcium and magnesium here. Um, and we did more. oyster shell lime is another natural source of high calcium lime, and uh, you can get it the, the, the biggest thing with oyster shell is you generally don't you can't get it in a really fine grind, but um, I was sharing with someone is that's okay. you know the finest of grind is about how If you need so much in a certain period of time, well, you need to know how fine the grind is to make sure you can get it there within that time frame. If it's a coarser grind like that, you can put it on. You just have to put it on in higher quantities. But then it'll release over time. And so once you get balanced there, you might not have to put anything more on for several years because you've got that gradual release of that coarser material that's that's gradually being broken down. Rock phosphates... Are uh, another source of calcium, and this is this is a, a dilemma here for certified organic growers, and, uh, and I'll still illustrate in a second here. Um, hard rock phosphate, colloidal phosphate, reactive phosphate, which is the Tennessee brown phosphate, or the clay phosphates, which are the colloidal phosphates. They all are more or less in that range. Some of them are higher than that, but you cannot get you cannot get phosphorus without calcium, in all the natural sources. Because that's the way it occurs in nature. Whether it's a, and I didn't put bone meal up here. I could have put bone meal or fish bone meal, which is very similar to the phosphates. Um, in their content. So what? Here's here's if you have a situation, where, you're deficient. Larry can Larry Larry can relate to this. We're we're working on an experiment with him. Um. He's certified naturally grown. He's got high calcium levels, he's higher than he needs to be, but he's really deficient in phosphate. And as a certified grower, the phosph- rock phosphates are his only, his only option to get the phosphorus. But if he applies the phosphorus, the, the, the rock phosphate, then he's applying more calcium, which he doesn't need. He's already too high in. And so, um, how do you solve that dilemma? we're, there's, there's actually a situation where if everything else is good, and we're going to see, well, how it goes, there is actually a situation where calcium could be even higher as long as everything else is in, in the required uh, levels that is needed. You can actually... Can you put all this stuff in order to, to balance or what? No, no, no. These are just, these are just the sources you have available to you. So you could, you know, if you have marl or oyster shell lime and that's your source, then that's the material you'll use to... Have to use at the same time, no, no, no. Yeah, you would pick. You, you would pick, the, you would the, pick the one. Like, say, for example, you don't have any limestone mines near you, but you live near the ocean. You might have marl. You might have oyster shell. Mm-hmm. That is going to be the, the source that you're going to use to to get the calcium, or even the, or even the phosphate too. Yeah, but you can see how the you know we. Anyway, I was saying that that you can actually raise your calcium levels higher than is optimum and what I was going to say here is I think we can be more gracious I can think we can be more merciful merciful than maybe would be justified and things still will do well so we can err on the side of mercy and yeah as long as as long as everything else yeah as long as everything else is is adequate so that it's not gonna because calcium controls every other element in the soil and if you get too high with it it starts tying things up and if you don't have enough of them then then the plants not gonna get them and you're gonna have problems so but but uh, there are soils that have much higher levels of calcium the, the chalk soils of England that do really well but they also have everything else that they need and so I I wouldn't shoot for that If I, if I, but if you're in a situation where you've got these high calcium, naturally high calcium soils, um, you're not going to bring them down. You know, you can't, well, sulfur takes out the cations. That's how you get them out of the soil if they're in excess. But you couldn't put enough sulfur on to reduce the calcium levels in a chalk soil uh, uh, to the levels that you need be. But if you can raise everything else up to the optimum levels, then. That chronically low soil, soils, chronically low in sulfur, right. are more common than uncommon, right. because so, sulfur leaches out of the soil, right. and so you lose it. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things. The way you store it is in organic matter, oh, okay. and so you want to. So what you want to do is you want to keep. And we'll talk a little bit more about it when we get the sulfur. You want to keep it at its optimum levels, and so that there's a bun, there's plenty there for the microbes and the root, plant roots and everything to take it up build it into the organic t- material and then when that breaks back down it'll get stored there and be available for the next crop that's how you because it is highly soluble it's highly leachable and so that's that's kinda how you have to build your stores of, of the anions and sulfur is one of those that's a negatively charged um, so anyway this is one of those dilemmas where people have to decide you know there are other solutions here it's a matter of what you, 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 know, you want to do, and we'll get to those when we get to the phosphates. Another good source is the manure, compost manure from, if you don't mind using animal products, and I know a lot of people don't care to use animal products for, for several legitimate reasons, um, but layer manure, the, ch- the chickens they raise to lay eggs, they supplement with calcium, and so the manure and the compost is, is fairly high in calcium. And so that's a good source of it. You get other nutrients in it as well, nitrogens and phosphate and potassium and and other nutrients. Um, I would, if I use materials like that, I prefer that they be well composted, you know, in a a very effective composting system where um, heat and microbes degrade any potential hazards that might be in there. I'm not afraid to use those materials. If If I can avoid using them, I do just because there are hazards that come along with them. Um, industrial byproducts, uh, there's, va- there, the v- content of calcium is variable. Um, but kiln dust is just a byproduct of the cement industry. And uh, the uh, um, burnt lime industry. And it's just the dust that forms in the pro- manufacturing of that. Uh, cement is, is calcium silicate. And so it's just the dust that comes off of there. They, it's a waste product for them and so you can get it sometimes pretty cheap if it, if it you're in a spot that it's available uh you you do have to again look at an analysis of it to make sure that there's no other uh contaminants coming along with it that you you for not to have um, sugar beet waste when they filter sugar beet juices when they're making um sugar from sugar beets they filter it through uh cal- high, it's pr- it's high calcium lime stone and you know when they're done when they, they only use it for so long and, and then they they chuck it they, when I was up, when we were out in Colorado there's a big sugar beet plant and there's a mountain of this uh, calcium high calcium limestone piled out next to the plant and uh, you can about have it for free the only the only concern sometimes you'll see in that is but there sometimes there'll be nematodes in it um, but if you're putting it into a system you're increasing the health of that shouldn't be a significant issue if you, if you have a situation where that already is an issue you may want to second-guess that at, the, at that point in time but um, there are some other like I said there are some other sources of, of their, their byproducts of industry that um, use calcium They're liming materials and uh, you can sometimes get them for free sometimes they'll even pay you to haul them away depending on what they are um, and so if it works then uh, it's, it's fine. And it's something that you need. Any questions on those? There are, like I said, there are other materials. This is not a, an extensive list. There's other things out there. Um, I've had people, you know, the sheetrock that you put on your, huh, now I wouldn't recommend using it, but it's gypsum. Gypsum board, they call it. But the, the um, sheet rock that you put up on walls. Uh, there's glues in the paper and everything that, that I wouldn't recommend, but it's gypsum. And so I've had people ask me, well, can I just grind up my old sheetrock rock and, and uh, put it on my fields? I said, yeah, sure. I, I don't know if he was able to grind it up fine enough, though. The stuff he showed me were just big chunks that I've ripped up and everything. What was it you said was in the sugar waste? place? Um, sometimes nematodes. Are all nematodes bad? No. And a lot of bad nematodes are not always bad, if I can put it that way. They change their behavior depending on the conditions. If they're, in, if they're fed and nourished, they change their conditions, they can't, just like we do. We, you know, When we're desperate, we tend to do things in desperation, as, whereas when their food source is sufficient, they behave in different ways. Than, than, uh. Okay, magnesium... Uh, These are some of the roles of magnesium. Uh, They're part of the chlorophyll molecule and therefore they're actively involved in photosynthesis. Without magnesium, which is the center molecule in the chlorophyll uh, molecule, or center atom in the chlorophyll molecule, um, you don't get photosynthesis. So magnesium is vital for that. It aids in phosphate metabolism, activates several enzyme systems, it has a role in soil structuring, and it is also, uh, I didn't mention that I don't know, on the rolls. Uh, calcium is immobile, largely immobile in the plant. So when, one of the things when you're looking at um, symptoms, defic- you're looking at a plant and trying to discern, well, what's, what's wrong, what's it missing? Depending on whether a, a nutrient is mobile or immobile, whether it's fixed in when it comes in and it's not going to be extracted back out and moved around in the plant, um, your symptoms will show up in the, in the younger part of the plant in the new leaves, in the new stem, and everything. Whereas if it's mobile, then the plant will just pull it out from the older leaves, the lower leaves, move it up to the younger leaves, and so your symptoms will show up on the older leaves. So, um, magnesium is mobile in the plant, and has is, is everybody gotten over with that? Deficiency symptoms, Yellow, yellowing mottling of older leaves. Remember I said there was mobile in the plant. So, On the bottom leaves on your plants, you're going to see yellowing. Uh, Sometimes it's a mottled yellowing, sometimes it's a solid yellowing. But it typically shows up in the older leaves and works its way up from the bottom. So when you start seeing that... Now, we're going to have to differentiate symptoms because there's other nutrients that are mobile and they also show up in the bottom of the plant in in similar ways. So We'll have to differentiate that. Um, An excess amount of magnesium can can be similar to the deficiency symptoms. Uh, The reason for this, which we're going to get into, is because magnesium has a range. When you fall out of that range, whether it's not enough or it's too much, the plant can't get it. And so once you go above a certain level, the plant can't get it. And it probably has something to do with the tightness of the soil, and how tightly held the magnesium is to the soil, because there's too much of it there. And so it's much more difficult for the plant to get it. Okay, sources. Again, this is not a comprehensive list, there are, but these are the most common things that you would be able to, to find. Um, there are some other materials that could be used, but I'm trying to stick with the things that I think work the best and would, would possibly be the most accessible to people. Uh, of course the top one is dolomitic lime, again with a 20 to 24 percent calcium, 10 to 12 percent magnesium. Um, a material called Sulpomag or K-Mag, those are, those are brand names, it's, uh, I can never get this right. Potassium magnesium sulfate, or sulfate of potassium magnesia. What it is basically is potassium, magnesium, and sulfur. <laughs> sulfate. That's where the Sulpomag comes from. And it's typically 22 percent K2O, now The elemental uh, identification for potassium is K. And you'll notice I have K2O there. The reason for that is because when they decided how they were going to label fertilizer, they decided to use the compound potash, K2O, (coughs) potassium uh, oxide potash, as they were going to measure the content of that, not the actual element potassium. And so if you want, if you want the actual amount of potassium, you'd have to multiply that by .83, I think it is, to actually find out what the actual content. And I don't know, uh, you'll find, you'll see when we get to phosphorus that that's the same with phosphorus. It's, it's measured in content on the bag as the compound phosphate, P2O5. If you you have to multiply that times .44 if you want to get the actual phosphorus content. It's it's in the bag, and I, I don't know why. The, what the reasoning is? Everything else is an elemental form. The way it's represented is that those two things are two of the major materials. And some people speculate that they put it on like that so people thought they were getting more than they were paying for, than they really were. <laughs> when you take it down to the elemental <laughs> form, it's actually less. It's actually less material um, in the uh, in the bag. Uh, it's 11% magnesium. And it's 20 to 22% sulfur. Now, you, how you would choose what materials, is just like what I do, how you choose what materials you need depends on what, what your overall need is. If you need potassium, magnesium, and sulfur, then this would be the kind of material that you would, you would want to use as part of what you apply to your soil. Because you're getting multiple things all at one time. This comes as a manufactured material and it comes as a mined material. So there's certified organic sources for this, and there's, there's non-certified organic sources for this. If you're getting it from a reputable company, I don't, uh, I haven't been able to discern any difference between the two, except the cost. Um, you mean that it had a salt index or high in sodium? Probably because of a salt index. It, it's, it's a matter of how much, uh, it's a measure against sodium of how salty it makes the, when it, when it breaks down how much, how many salts, what's the salt impact so that was the one that, that on the solar. Um I don't, I don't know in particular why that one would have, would have a high salt index. Okay. Did you guys all hear that? Larry, Larry said that the only difference between the two, they come out of the same mine. Some of it can be manufactured, <laughs> but they basically come out of the mm-hmm. same mine. One has an anti-caking agent added to it and the other one doesn't. Other than that they're, other than that they're the same thing. Was it muriate of potash? Potassium. Yeah, no, that's a different material. You don't even see it up here. Well, well, we're not on potassium anyway, but, um, yeah, if they were talking about muriate of potash, which is potassium chloride, that does have a very high salt index. Well, I don't know if it's actual elemental sodium that was the issue, or if they were testing, I would assume it would be for sodium, unless they were doing salt, if they were measuring a salt for uh, salt concentration. Um, Without without looking at it, I wouldn't you know. Okay, well I've not had any experience with uh, assault problems with Sulphamag or K Mag, Um, but I'll have to check that out a little more and see if there is anything. Magnesium sulfate is the other source. That's Epsom salts, stuff you buy at the grocery store to put in your bathtub Mm -hmm. to relax your aching muscles. so you can actually buy it at the grocery store if you need a little bit, uh, some to put on your garden. The, the analysis is usually lower. It's usually in the nines, nine and a half, 9.8. Um, commercial sources tend to have a higher percentage at about 11% on it. Um, so again, it comes down to, you know, overall, what is the overall picture? And what do I need? And what materials will fill that need? the best without, without causing, um, imbalances, because your goal is not to create, not to bring one thing into balance by taking something else out of balance, because you're kind of, you're kind of defeating the, the, the purpose of it. Okay. So, okay, on this next slide, you like my artwork? <laughs> um, <clears throat> Here's how calcium and magnesium affect the soil structure. Calcium flocculates the soil colloids. Remember, they have a charge. And calcium, if you noticed up on there, I didn't point that out, The calcium has a double plus charge. Magnesium also has a double plus charge. So it has two charges, basically two charges that it can attach on with. There's more to this, but it's kind of beyond the scope of this class. It has to do with the size of the atom and the, and the circle of hydration, how thick of a circle of hydration as to how, why these behave differently. Um, calcium is a bigger atom, and has a, but it's, uh, it has the same t- double plus charge, and so it has a smaller hydration um, um, circle on it, where water is, is attracted to it and it's attached to it, whereas the magnesium is a smaller atom and it has a bigger circle. It has, still has two charges, so it's attracted in the water, but it gets a bigger, thicker water jacket on it. And if you've ever dealt with any fertilizers, including Solpomag, uh, that have or any fertilizer that have magnesium in it and you've seen them cake up and kind of harden that's because magnesium attracts water it's really is hydroscopic it, it just attracts a lot of water and because of the, because of its chemistry because of this its atomic size and and the amount of water that is attracted to it as a result of that so here's how the structuring takes place uh, Calcium flocculates the soil, and it, what it does is it takes these plates, clay, pl- clay colloids are like plates. They're flat. And you can stack them on top of each other, or you can, or you can put them edge to edge, or whatever. Um, flocculation is when the soil colloids are edge to edge, or face to edge. Whereas magnesium aggregates the soil colloids, and it brings them together face to face. Plate to plate. Can you see how the magnesium would tighten the soil up and close up pore space, as opposed to the calcium, who flock, which flocculates it and uh, causes them to be on edge or side to side? You can see that a lot more bigger bigger spaces can be created as a result of that of that action. And that's that's all that happens is you get you get a chemical flocculation or aggregation of the soil between the two of these, and. Calcium needs to dominate that, but magnesium also has to have its role in proper soil structure to make sure that the porosity of that soil, that that soil can breathe correctly. And so that's why when you look at, when you look at the, um, the Albrecht modeling, the total exchange capacity modeling, calcium dominates that bucket. You're going to have 60, 70, 60 to 70 percent of that bucket full of calcium. And on most typical soils, it's going to be about 68% calcium. I work with soils that are so low, that they have so little capacity, that you can't even hold enough calcium and magnesium to grow a crop. You have to put even more on that adds up to to more than the equivalent of these two. These two should equal 80% of that bucket. 80%. And calcium is 60 to 70, and magnesium is 10 to 20. And it depends on the exchange capacity is how, how do you move those ratios. Calcium is going to loosen it up more. So where would, where would you want a little bit higher calcium levels than magnesium levels than the average of 6812? If you had a heavy soil, if you had a heavier soil, you would want the calcium level to be a little bit higher so you get a little bit more flocculation and it opens it up a little bit more. Where would you want to see more magnesium than calcium? if you had a sandy soil, we had bigger pore spaces, and you needed to bring that, you needed to, to, to close that down some, so you had better water holding ability. The, the objective is to balance, balance out the, the water and air holding ability of the soil, by, by balancing these two with them in, in this, this chemical structuring of the soil. And what happens when you structure the soil this way, now you saw when I started this, that I had calcium, magnesium, and tillage. The goal of this is to, is, to, is to open the soil up to its proper porosity so that it can breathe, so you can have air exchange. You can do that with tillage. But when you do that with tillage, what, here, here's what happens. If you continue to till that ground, you open it up and you put air into it. It, takes a, it would take a little bit of while to, to explain this, but what happens is, over time, the magnesium levels increase and the calcium levels decrease. And with time, your soil gets harder and harder and harder. Even actually not using the right lime, if you're just using a dolomitic lime, for example, for um, pH adjustment, with time, calcium is going to go down and magnesium is going to go up, and this is why. Calcium affects pH, or magnesium affects pH. If calcium was at a 1 in influencing pH, magnesium would be at 1.67. So in other words it affects pH 1.67 times more than calcium does. So you can see over time you could maintain your pH level but your magnesium levels are going up and your calcium levels are going down but your pH looks fine because you're using the wrong material to so you're not you're not maintaining your soil structuring and your balance between those two. Um, When we get to them uh, when we get to the potassium and sodium potassium influences pH twice as much as calcium does. And sodium affects it four times, four times as much as calcium. So you could have a great pH, and it'd be all sodium and, you know, excess of magnesium and excess of potassium and sodium and, and deficiency in calcium. This happened to us at Eden Valley, where our pH was at 7.2. I think some of them were seven, around 7.2, some of them 7.4. Well, that's high. And, but our soil tests show we were deficient in calcium. The parent material there was granite naturally high in the potassium and the magnesium calcium is leached out easier and so it was it was naturally the natural expression or disposition of that soil um, the university in that state was uh, told us we were crazy for um, cuz we would decide to put high calcium lime on and they're like your pH is at 72 74 your pH is going to go up and it's going to make things worse you know what happened what do you think happened it briefly went up, and then it went down. Why did it go down? Because the calcium replaced these other cations that affected pH even more. And so you don't, you don't do your, you don't me- use pH. You, you don't worry about pH just to adjust pH. You worry about what cation nutrients are missing that should build the pH that you should have. There are some times when you need to till a lot. Um, well, you have to. The soil has to be opened up to breathe, and if it, if you don't have the chemistry to keep it open, you're going to have to keep tilling it. The, the mistake in tillage is when you continue to till and not address the character of the soil, do not address the condition of the soil, and you begin deteriorating. Because when you put air into the soil, you're you're um, you're burning up organic matter for one thing. You're getting a compaction layer. And um, when you don't have these conditions, your biology is not going to keep it open for you either because they have to have that high calcium level in order for them to thrive. And so if you don't have that there and you just use the tillage, so yes, when you're starting out, you might plow and you might till and, and uh, it's doing it's doing damage, folks. <laughs> it's, it's not that it's not doing damage, but you've got to get... And so you have to recognize that because if you don't do the correctives that are necessary to get it to stay open without all of that tillage, eventually the tillage will do you in. And so it's a matter of knowing and, and again, like I said, tillage is not just pulling a plow behind a tractor. You can plant alfalfa. You can plant other tap-rooted um, green manure crops, or tiller radishes are a big thing now, or daikon radish where they can you can plant it and, and it'll it'll go down and open the soil up. So, there's, there's, there's other ways of, of tilling the soil. And you don't, once you have good soil structure, you really don't want to damage it. Once you get wormholes and root holes that have, have, have broken down and you've got all this, these, these channels in the soil, tillage is a management practice. And it's, about, it's all about making sure that there's air that soil can breathe. And um, so, in some cases, you might till shallow to prepare a seed bed, because you don't want to damage that lower part of the soil structure that you've achieved from uh... your biology and the roots and everything you don't want to damage it so you may go in uh... like uh... jm fortier up in canada where he uses the tarps puts them down to break down the residues and everything and and, uh... he doesn't go in and he doesn't till the bed uh... aggressively because he doesn't want to damage his soil structure that he's developed well, yeah, sure. You could go in, you know, you set a, if you have a power harrow or a, a tiller or whatever, you set it just so it's going to go a couple inches or whatever just to prepare a seed bed. Um, a, lot of, a lot of times the tarping will prepare a pretty good seed bed, depending on what material you had. If it, you had a really fine material, it'll prepare a pretty good seed bed without doing any tillage. Um, if it was a coarser material, sometimes that's not the case. but. Right. If you develop, and if your tillage develops a compaction layer, where you need, to, may need you may not need to till the whole thing because you're just going to hit the same same depth that you're you're tilling at all the time. <laughs> you may want to bring a subsoiler in and just go right beneath that compaction and break it open so roots can get through it. So it's a management thing. It's a it's a matter of knowing what is the condition of the soil, and I I want to preserve what's good in the soil, but I also want to be sure that I have good. Um, Porosity in the soil, good air dynamics, because then it's going to give you good water dynamics. You want water to be—it's like the tides with that, with you know when you see the tides with the with the pull of the gravity of the moon. Um, that actually pulls water up and down in the soil. If there's passageways for it to come up and down in the soil, it'll actually pull it up in the soil and it'll recede, and it'll pull it up and it'll recede, and and uh, so you want to be sure that. Uh, because it's not just porosity; it's good water dynamics, which we're going to talk about in the in the session on water. Sure. Depending on what what you need to accomplish, yeah. you know, sometimes you're going to have to go in. You're going to plow it or till it. Sure. Okay. Um, sometimes you're just going to do a shallow till. Sometimes you're going to want to go in there with the broad fork if you're if you got an area where you're doing it by hand or, or a subsoiling. I like a the keyline subsoiling plow from uh, Yeomans, who, which is. Uh, very effective at just lifting and dropping without tearing apart and ripping apart everything. It just lifts, drops, fractures, and leaves the air and moisture getting down in there to to do its job and everything. So it's all about what you're trying to achieve. Um, people just you don't need to go out and exercise your tractor. You can go out and exercise the broad fork if you want just for the exercise, but you know if it doesn't need to be done, it doesn't need to be done. Now the flip side of that is the idea of never tilling. You've got a lot of people that are no tilling and not tilling at all and they do not have the soil structure they don't have the chemistry there to continually break down the residues and you get a you get a matting of residue and anaerobic conditions and then you get formaldehyde and alcohol kills the, the bacteria preserves the residues um, and you you get into a mess you've got to have the right soil construction and you can get to the point where you you can largely not have to till um, that seven thousand acre farm i told you about uh, just to show you the, the water dynamics, they they fly. They, it's so big they fly their cover crop on. They cover crop, but they fly a cover crop onto 4,000 acres a year. But they have to fly it on with an airplane because they haven't harvested the corn or the soybeans or the cotton yet. And so they fly it on to a couple weeks, depending on how they where they think the crop is and how soon they're going to be harvesting. They fly it on a couple weeks, sometimes three weeks ahead of time. It germinates, starts growing. They go in harvest, and the cover crop comes up and. And uh, they, um, everybody around them was irrigating, and they weren't, but the channels that were produced by that cover crop, now they come down, they come in and they burn it down with an herbicide. So, I don't want to make everybody sound like an angel because they're doing, this. I mean, eventually, they just transitioned 2,500 acres, I think, into c- certified organic and they're trying to eliminate that process and they're getting close to getting close to be able to do it by with natural systems um but their infiltration was so much better that they were still everybody around had been irrigating for two weeks and they still didn't have to irrigate they weren't even close to having to irrigate because they because of the, the the structuring of the soil was allowing water infiltration instead of running off uh, in kentucky where i live now um, I, I had a couple of old times say, so yeah, we used to fish in this creek, but it runs dry now, so we can't fish in the creek and everything. And what happened was the chemistry of the soil changed over time. The environmental influences and wrong practices have, have compacted that soil to the point where it doesn't infiltrate anymore. And it used to be all these springs running out all over the place because the water would infiltrate, run into the down to the ground, the bedrock and the fractured bedrock and everything, and it'd make its way out sideways down, down the hill to... The creeks, and it would kind of keep them running all the time. Well, the conditions have changed, and now, so, now it's feast or famine. You get a rain, and it all just washed, f- comes pouring, running off, carrying everything it can carry with it. It's not infiltrating anymore. And so then you, that, that creates even more damage to your soil. And so you know, the goal there is to get that soil open back up so the water's infiltrating rather than running off, and then storing it up there, and which we'll talk about how to store it up there when we talk about carbon fertility. Yeah right that's the ultimate goal I don't know if you were in all the sessions but the ultimate goal is to create the conditions where the soil biology can thrive where they can fully function and do all these things for you that they can do better than we can do anyway in a more productive way so yes that that's the objective is actually to get it so that the biology can can function the way it's designed to function and maintain structure maintain porosity maintain uh, water dynamics Uh, In the soil without having to was once you have there was um, some research that was done up in Canada And they were doing some research with uh, rolling down crimping down a a cover crop They put they had bare ground. They had bare ground with plastic mulch on it. They had uh, Cover crop that they crimped down rolled down and they put and then they had uh, rolled down with plastic on it that they put plastic over and the um, you remember here to make sure I get this right. The uh, the ones that they crimped down and they rolled, the one with the plastic, did the best of all of them. Why? Why was that? Well, there's there's mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, and they create a hyphal network, and and it was all alri- it was established. Now, if you go in there and you till that, you just tore it all up. And so they planted, they planted um, summer squash on the plastic mulch. And the, the stuff that came off of the, the crimped down cover crop with the plastic put over, it came in three weeks ahead of even the plastic mulch on the soil that had been tilled. And that was actually the next one that came in. The crimped down cover crop you know, was, keeping the, was keeping the soil cooler because it was shading it, which in some respects is what you want depending on the crop you're growing. But it's uh, a heat-loving crop like summer squash. You know, that plastic, it was an IRT mulch, a green plastic mulch that uh, transmitted infrared. Um, so, again, this comes back to the whole idea of tillage. Why are you tilling? What is your objective? And you have to go back to the modeling and say, we want that soil to be able to breathe. And so that's our goal. And you may, shallow, you may till a couple inches. You may till the whole thing. You've got to go and you've got to re-straighten it out for whatever reason that might be you might just subsoil where you only you're really not damaging the mid zone significantly because you're pulling a subsoiling shank you know every 15 18 inches so you're not totally tearing it all apart but you're opening it up deep so again it's, it's what what is it you're trying to achieve uh, with your tillage and what tool are you going to use but the plow often deep concept is I, I have soil in Kentucky where it's, it hasn't been tilled in so long they, they hate it to death and um, you can see it. If you ever see Queen Anne's a wild carrot, you know uniform over the field, you know it's pretty bad. <laughs> uh, but the potassium levels were non-existent. The pho- uh, phosphate levels were non-existent. You pull hay off every single year, but it, it's a lower CEC soil. It's a heavier soil. It's a, it's a more silty clay type of soil, so it's heavier, but it doesn't have a lot of colloidal clay in it because a lot of it's been damaged and and, and weather aged over time, and so it, it's not functioning ver- anymore. Um, so it 's a heavier soil um, i 've had to go in and till it and it 's done damage to it because it burns out organic matter. You have to know what do I have to do to compensate for for these things that I have to do but it would it would just turn in it was just hard chunks, and so I had to go in and work it and go in and work it but i wasn 't just working it I was putting in soil amendments that would begin rebuilding it, so eventually it would it would um Structure and I wouldn't have to go in and do that anymore, and I can see it after two years We've got so much better crumb structure in that soil. that was just these these blocky chunks uh, of soil And so yes, you may have to go in and you may have to plow often and plow deep But your your techniques might change over time your your plowing might be alfalfa or tiller radishes or Or those type of things you know specific kinds of crops to get get that going it doesn't have to be iron to, to accomplish a task, did I see a hand up here somewhere? Yeah, you mentioned a subsoiler that you like. Did you just say that again? Uh, the Keyline Plow, Yeomans Keyline Plow. It's from Australia. It's a much more efficient design. It's you know it doesn't just. In America, we tend to want to just like bowl our way through everything. More more horsepower. Just put keyline. Key line. Yeah, it was a whole system of of um, re redev- soil that P. A. Yeomans in Australia. You know, Australia's got a lot of dry areas. He was trying to use it to to establish, reestablish moisture and everything. And the technique was to to, to run your channels at a grade, a specific grade, so that water would gradually, would infiltrate and would gradually work its way down, rather than aggressively work its way down. So the goal was to capture more water in the soil. And it works really well. he actually wrote a book on it, the key line concept or something, I think, like that. There's, if you go on the Internet, you'll see a lot of people have illustrations of them doing that, you know, key lining. Um, but it's just a it's, a, it's a tillage, it's a soil structure management technique. It's just a very efficient one. It takes lower horsepower to pull it. It's much cleaner and it's, it moves through the soil and just lifts and drops. And with the lifting and the dropping, it, it fractures and it opens the channel. But, like I said, if you don't have these conditions, if you have high magnesium soils and it rains, it'll run back together just like soup. And when it dries, it'll be harder than it was the time before. If you don't change the conditions, you can plow and plow and plow, and pretty soon you'll be like Pharaoh in the Red Sea. What happens, what happens with these two is the this, this sponge, remember I mentioned the sponge effect? When you get this, this flocculation, proper flocculation aggregation of the, of the soil, it, when you drive over it, it might collapse it but it'll want to come back up the way it is. And so with time, it'll restructure itself so that, you know, if, if you're driving over it with something or walking on it, if you had livestock and it was packing all day, it'll tend to want to re-expand itself, reflocculate itself because it's a chemical thing, it's not a, it's not a mechanical thing. And so um, that's what you want to get to. And so you, you will minimize you're no longer there's no longer a need. You know, when God brings us to being loving and lovable Christians, well there's some things there's no you don't need to plow the ground anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well it's it's simply a way the way that the plates uh, attract to each other. It's an electrical attraction. And it has to do with the the, the atomic and, and hydrological dynamics of of the calcium and the magnesium as the Y one will tend to the, the connect them side by side like this, the two flat plates side by side like this, or perpendicular, face to side, like this, as opposed to just wanting to, magnesium wants to bring them together this way. The way the chemo- chemo dynamics are. And, and so you can see that that, if they're all flat on top of each other like that, you're gonna have a lot less pore space. If they're, st- if they're held together like this, you're gonna have more pore space. Well, that's another reason you might need to till because you need to incorporate the materials that you're putting in. Mm-hmm. Some materials that can do that, um, phosphate won't move very far and so if you put it on the top it's going to stay there until um, the microbes, the, 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 the fungal hyphae come up and get it. Uh, but if, you don't, if it's dry on the top, it's not going to happen. But if there's moisture there, they can come up and they'll break it down and they'll get it and they'll haul it down and eventually it'll, it'll get taken down into the soil. A lot of the other materials will actually, when they dissolve, they'll work their way into the soil, so you can put it on the surface and, uh, and, uh, without tilling, and, and it'll work its way in. depends on, what you're again, what your objective, what you're needing to do. That's why sometimes you have to till more initially to work stuff in. Yeah, calcium is actually heavy. And if anything, it wants to continue to move down. And so you want to capture it on those colloids you don't want it to keep moving. Sometimes they'll combine carbon with it because carbon is lighter and carbon wants to stay on the surface and so sometimes they'll, they'll combine it with carbon um, and uh, slow down that process of, of it wanting to move down. It's a metal. Gravity works on it. So if it doesn't have some place it's attracted to and it held there, it'll, it'll want to go down. This media was brought to you by Audioverse